Robert Schumann is often described as a literary composer. The son of a bookseller and translator, he showed an early interest in romantic writers, as was reflected in his piano pieces from the 1830s, such as Carnival and Kreisleriana. By the 1850s, though, Schumann's literary interests were changing. One of his most charming and most perplexing chamber music pieces from this time is Opus 132, The Fairy Tale Narrations, for viola, clarinet and piano. These were followed by a set of piano pieces, the Gesänge der Frühe, or Songs of Dawn, that similarly suggest a mixing of genres on the composer's part. We have instrumental works promising to tell fairy tales, and even to sing. Professor Barry Manane explains Schumann's early literary interests and the appeal of fairy tales for the German romantics. We know that he's a big fan, or was a big fan of Jean-Paul, for example. We also know he's, you know, he read people like Hoffmann, he read these romantic fairy tales when he was younger. We also know in manuscript form at least, that he wrote or started writing a gothic novel of his own based on Jean Paul's uh, Unsichtbare Loge, a secret society novel, very popular in Germany around kind of around eighteen hundred at the time. Um so there is very much a sense that he's you know, he, he, he grows up in a culture that's immersed with popular forms of gothic stories in the widest sense of the world be, be it fairy tales, be it secret societies be it ghost stories and things like that fairy tales give writers a chance to write about really weird things <laughs> uncanny things and one of the ideas behind German romanticism is that it's a natural form of writing, it's a way of nature expressing itself in simplistic ways to people, that's one of the things that they think about so writers like Hoffman write fairy tales and the golden pot where nature is talking itself through trees and you know talking animals and things like that and it's a whole kind of worldview that goes along with the fairy tale as well so I suppose there's the kind of the, the, that's the kind of the, the, the rich basis I think that fairy tales around 1800 come from There's nothing so explicit as talking animals in Schumann's fairy tales though the four movements of Opus 132 shift mood suddenly between the impetuous and march-like to something more lyrical and tender. This is, above all, true chamber music. Each part is of equal importance and they liberally share themes. In the first movement we start in a rather easy-going state, but there's always a sense of something impinging on the composer's consciousness, that round the corner something is lurking, and it's perhaps that that conveys the sense of the fairy tale. <laughs>
Schumann composed Opus 132 in October 1853. It's often referred to as one of his last works, one of his late works, one of his most peculiar pieces. This is in many ways very simple music. It's not that hard to play. It is, though, quite hard to understand. Many of the musicians I've spoken to have commented on the difficulties Schumann poses for performers. Here's Tim Horton. I always think there's something sort of idealistic about Schumann's piano writing. It's a bit like, I always think if the, you sort of compare Schumann and Chopin and Schubert and Beethoven, if you like, if you take those two as pairs, Beethoven and Chopin know exactly what they're doing. They're great pianists, they know how the piano works. They, no matter how difficult it is, it always feels right. You just have to put the work in. With Schubert and Schumann, it's almost like the piano is... Uh, not irrelevant, but it's, it's almost like the piano is just the vessel. It's, it's like an idealistic bit of writing, if you like. It's not necessarily practical, and which no one ever plays well. <laughs> um, it's almost impossible. But, of course, there's something very idealistic in the, in the character of it. This is also the autumn in which Schumann made the acquaintance of the young Johannes Brahms, and he, Brahms, the violinist Josef Joachim and Albert Dietrich, spent a great deal of time together playing music and writing music for one another. We can then see these fairy tale pieces as stemming from a new kind of creativity on the composer's part, with enjoying exploring a kind of musical simplicity that belied greater sophistication of technique and thought in the same way that the fairy tale can both entertain and disturb us. It's a change in aesthetic Schumann shared with his contemporaries. Barry Manane again. The strangeness of nature speaking for itself, that kind of ends with romanticism. Um, that, that it's, it's linked to a romantic kind of worldview and a scientific worldview, uh, romantic natural philosophy, where there's an idea that the world itself isn't kind of completely understandable with rational means, that there are irrational elements to nature, that things like ghosts do exist and that even if we think we only see ghosts it doesn't make them more or less important it makes them a phenomenon that we have to take seriously the idea that kind of the world as we see it and we try to reduce in mathematical terms is only one tiny element of of a kind of an entire holistic worldview that we don't see that kind of thing dies out in the course of the, the 19th century we get a much more kind of I suppose, realistic understanding of, of science, and that, that kind of peters out. But the popularity of the fairy tale is a kind of a, a sanctioned form of telling the uncanny, and as a sanctioned form of, of strange storytelling. That, that remains, I think, pretty much throughout the 19th century. But the sanitised experience, I think, is important. You know, it's something that kids read. It's not something that grown-ups read. And it's something that kids read to get a moral message. It's not something, you know, that that's supposed to be kind of endangering the way that Hoffman's stories shock the hell out of us when we read them.
idea of romantic art encompassing all the arts is something that we find with the Schlegel brothers. It's something that we find with, with writers like Novalis or Ludwig Tieck, who also writes fairy tales and the kind of fairy tales that then get picked up by Schumann. So there's an idea, for example, of music being the original form of poetry. And we get poems that are written for singing. There is a whole kind of, there's a whole movement in, in German Romanticism about collecting folk songs. So in that sense, to say that, you know, literature and, and, and music are, are linked for Romanticism, it, it seems to be this, partly this mixing of forms that's important for them to come up with some form of kind of Gesamtkunstwerk, but also the idea, similar to the fairy tales, of, of collecting folk culture, indigenous culture, living forms of art, natural forms of art. And romantic poetry is written to be sung in an awful lot of cases. It's, it's there for precisely this kind of lived, uh, this lived connection. From the start, I think it's important that romantic works are there almost as works which start to imagine their own adaptation. The kernel of how it can become a kind of a multimedial artwork is there, at least on a conceptual basis. And I think that's quite probably quite important for what happens around 1840, 1850 then, when these songs start to, or when these texts start to be kind of turned into, into, into musical texts as well. Schumann's Piano Pieces, Opus 133, The Songs of Dawn, also seem caught between musical and poetic spheres. Again, there is a tendency to simplicity and repetition. The first piece in particular seems rather like a chorale, but again, this is undermined by rarely heading in the expected harmonic direction, as Tim Horton explains. A lot of the voice leading is not quite what you expect. A lot of these suspensions that are not where you always expect them to be um, make it rather more difficult. And then there's a lot of canonic stuff towards the end, which... It's, qu- it's very hard to voice. I mean, it's almost like an organ piece, I suppose, this first piece. Mm-hmm. And daring to get the character... I mean, he writes Pianissimo at the beginning, and there is nothing. There's a tiny crescendo, diminuendo, and then there's a subito forte, two-thirds of the way through the piece. And it's just daring to keep those characters absolutely distinct, I think. Schumann's wife Clara described the first of the Gesänge der Frühe as strikingly original, but somehow hard to grasp. In many ways, it sums up the challenges of Schumann's later music. The first of Opus 133 is played here by Tim Horton in the Hollywell Music Room.
This episode of the Unlocking Late Schumann podcast series was written and presented by Laura Tunbridge, with contributions from Barry Manane and Tim Horton. The recordings of Opus 132 are courtesy of Hyperion and were played by the Nash Ensemble. <laughs>